Hello everyone, and welcome to a special Halloween edition of Nutshell Politics. I'm your charming host, Justin Kinney, and I'm excited to be here with you guys for this special episode. Now, because this is a special bonus episode this week, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Instead of talking about a current event or political theory, we're going to be doing a whole episode today on the origins of Halloween, where it came from, how we got to where it is today, and we'll probably throw out a few little political tidbits here and there. But overall, hopefully this will just be a a quick, fun episode that you guys can enjoy as you celebrate Halloween today. So let's kick things off with where we got Halloween. Now, Halloween actually comes from an ancient Celtic holiday. This is where it was originally started. It has its roots in a holiday called Samhain. Now, Samhain is spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, but it is not pronounced the way that it's spelled. Uh, It looks like it's spelled Samhain, and that is how you will hear it pronounced sometimes on TV shows. I know Supernatural does a pretty terrible job of this, but it's actually pronounced Samhain. Now, I should mention there are a few other pronunciations out there that you may have heard, but none of them sound anything like Samhain. Samhain is an Irish or Celtic holiday, and actually that's where the word comes from. Samhain actually means summer's end. Irish itself is actually a pretty interesting language. It's, it's one of the more complicated ones, in my opinion. Not from like a grammatical perspective. Actually, grammar-wise, it's easier than English because there's so few exceptions to the rules. But its pronunciation and spelling can be all over the place at times, which is how you get Samhain from Samhain. But in modern Irish, as I said, Samhain means summer's end. And this was a holiday during like the Iron Age for the Celts, which is now Ireland, Scotland, the UK, other parts of Northern Europe, that really marked the end of summer and kicked off what was the Celtic New Year. And so their entire purpose here was to kind of signal the time of death of the old year, but the rebirth of the new year. And so it had this heavy symbolism because it coincided with kind of the end of the harvest season and the beginning of winter. And so there was a lot of emphasis on kind of the death, but into a resurrection that will re-rise at the end of winter. Now, very little is actually like firmly known about the holiday from the Iron Age, uh, but we do see elements of it today as well, especially its connection with with the dead and death. Uh, At the time, too, it was also about kind of communing with spirits on the other side, and so they lit big bonfires in honor of the dead. And it was also actually believed, too, on October 31st, that the ghosts of the dead could return to Earth and there could be communication there. They thought a lot of these connections to the dead carried over into being able to tell the future and prophesy. And so they, they all frequently wore costumes, attempted to kind of tell each other's fortune. But by about 43 AD, the Roman Empire had come through and conquered much of that Celtic territory. And so over the next you know, 400 years or so, when the Romans were in these Celtic lands, there were a couple Roman festivals that started to combine with the Celtic celebration of Samhain. Uh, the first one was something called Feralia, uh, which is a, a day also in kind of late October when the Romans traditionally honored the passing of the dead. And so it kind of naturally flowed into Samhain, the Celtic holiday. The second holiday was some, was a holiday to honor Pomona, which was the Roman goddess of like fruit and trees and that sort of thing. And, and the symbol of Pomona is actually the apple. And so we actually see this carried over to today as well because the incorporation of those two holidays probably explains some of the origins of the idea of bobbing for apples that is practiced in Halloween today. Now, if we fast forward a couple hundred years into the 600s AD, a man by the name of Pope Boniface IV dedicated the Pantheon in Rome in honor of all the various Christian martyrs of the time. 
And so this festival was meant to include all martyrs. It was actually called All Martyrs Day at the time. And over time, this festival became expanded to include all saints. So it's expanding to include more of the Christian dead. And it was moved to November 1st. This was by Pope Gregory III later on. Now, by the 9th century, as the influence of Christianity had started to spread into Celtic lands, we started to see it blend with and kind of out some of the older Celtic rites and kind of supplant them. And about 1000 AD, the church named November the 2nd as All Souls Day, a day to honor the dead. And it's, it's often thought that the church was trying to replace the Celtic Festival of the Dead with a similar but more church-sanctioned holiday. And so All Souls Day was actually celebrated very similarly to, to Samhain with big bonfires, dressing up in costumes, specifically costumes related to the afterlife or the dead, saints, angels, devils, that sort of thing. And we got the day before All Saints Day was called All Hallows or All Hallows Moss, which was a Middle English phrase or it comes from a Middle English phrase meaning All Saints Day. And then the night before it, the traditional night of, of Samhain became known as All Hallows Eve or Halloween. And so across Europe now at this point, because of the Celtic influence, the Roman influence, and then kind of come up, coming up from the Christian influence of the Catholic Church, we had Halloween on October 31st and All Saints Day on November 1st that were both designed to more pay homage to saints, uh, hollows meaning, meaning saints. And the reason it was placed around this time of year was to kind of compete with or supplant that ancient Celtic or Gaelic festival of Samhain. And then over time, as Christianity kind of took over, especially across Europe, the pagan roots and undertones of the holiday became lessened and replaced by some more Christian elements. But some of the basic traditions of the holiday kind of remained. As I mentioned, you know, the idea of dressing up in costume comes from this Celtic holiday. Uh, they had special feasts and meals and things like that. And they actually, at the time, made some of their lanterns by hollowing out gourds. And it's thought this is where we get some of the history of jack-o'-lanterns too. But I'm going to get more into some of these other traditions that we see and where they come from in a second. Now, unlike what a lot of people tend to think, Samhain and Halloween itself doesn't really have demonic or satanic origins. A lot of people think it does. A lot of people treat it as like this big satanic holiday. And while, while it's true there was some darkness associated with it, with the idea of the dead and communicating with the dead, it's not considered satanic in any sense. Uh, it, it literally was more about the harvest season and celebrating the, the end of the harvest, the death of, of everything, and then the rebirth in the new season and the new year. Some of the ideas of why, why people tend to think it's satanic actually comes from a mistranslation of the word Samhain. Uh, instead of meaning what people traditionally think it means is summer's end, there was a, a man, a scholar, a while back, back in like the, I think it's the 1700s, he was a British amateur historian. He actually mistranslated and said it referred to a Celtic god, meaning lord of death. And while most scholars have completely dismissed his claims, a lot of his writings still are used to to perpetuate the myth that the Celts were satanic in a sense, uh, with you know burning human sacrifices and other things like that. But there's really no evidence whatsoever of any of these sacrifices or satanic rituals occurring during during Samhain. Now that said, obviously we have seen Samhain be used or Halloween be used as a devil worshiping holiday on TV shows. If you're familiar at all with the Halloween movie series in Halloween 2, one of the main characters discovered that Michael Myers, the serial killer, had written the word Samhain across a blackboard in blood. 
and we, we see Samhain get referenced in Halloween 3 as well. And then kind of the list goes on and on. As I mentioned, Supernatural has done this. They've completely mispronounced the word in, in that uh, TV show. There was a, a band called Samhain in the early 1980s as well. And we actually do see some people today still celebrate it. I mean, actually, if you look at kind of some of the neo-pagan religious groups from like Celtic Reconstructionists to Wiccans, they have uh, frequently created kind of their own new ways to mark this kind of harvest festival, including some recreations of some of the ancient Celtic celebrations to any sort of rituals honoring ancestors or dead loved ones or the spirits and that sort of thing. Now, as I mentioned, it doesn't really have satanic origins, but we do see some element of darkness in the original holiday because this kind of communication with the spirit world uh, Samhain was seen as a time when the material world and the spirit world could possibly interact. They believed that spirits, including evil spirits, potentially, uh, could walk among the living. Now, they just didn't focus necessarily on the evil spirits or the malevolent ones. They believed that all spirits could, but there was some element of that evil spirit uh, that kind of goes along with it. But with that, let's kind of move into some of the traditions that we see today, jack-o'-lanterns, trick-or-treating, uh, those sorts of things, and talk about kind of where they came from. Uh, I've already kind of talked a little bit about the jack-o'-lanterns. Let's focus on that. One of the big traditions associated with Samhain uh, that goes back, you know, said thousands of years to the Celts included the carving of gourds. Now, specifically, they carved turnips, which is kind of a weird one, mostly because pumpkins weren't grown in Ireland at the time. Turnips are much, much smaller, much harder to carve, but you can find some pictures of carved turnips online if you start looking for them, see what they might have looked like. The thought here at the time, at least historians believe, that the carved turnips were used in these rituals to kind of shoo away or scare away the more malevolent spirits. And so they, you'll frequently see similar items carved, not turnips themselves, but similar faces and things carved on the outside of ancient churches that were built by Irish religious figures. Even Christian churches and things like that will still have some of these elements of those like weird little faces carved into small gourd-like figures when you look at some of the Irish influence of it. And so it's thought that they were used to kind of shoo away the evil spirits, that type of thing. Over time, jack-o'-lanterns have kind of risen out of that, uh, where we you know carve pumpkins and things today, very similarly to how they used to carve these gourds, usually turnips, but you also saw other things, potatoes, beets, any sort of other gourd that you could grow in Ireland at the time. Now, trick-or-treat, though, didn't happen at this time. This is something that came along a little bit later. The idea of trick-or-treating or going from house to house comes along in from mid, mid, medieval England. And the idea here is that there was a group of people who went around this time period, they were called solars, and they would go around on the night of Halloween begging the wealthy in their area for what are called soul cakes. And basically what they did is in exchange for getting a cake, they would pray for that person's soul. And so all across Europe, there was this tradition of dressing up during these major feast days. As I mentioned, the Celts dressed up as well. And so as the tradition of souling was brought in, they mixed kind of well with the idea of the Halloween traditions of dressing up in costume. So around the early half of the 1900s, we saw uh, Americans in particular, this idea of dressing up and going around trick-or-treating is very much an American thing, although it did have roots in Europe. Americans would dress up and go around house to house asking for food or money 
actually as well, with candy mostly taking the place of that original soul cake. Now also tied in with this idea of souling, you get the idea of what's called mumming. Now mumming is a British tradition. Uh, you started in the British Isles, but it kind of spread to a lot of former British colonies as well. And it's this idea of kind of amateur actors dressing up and engaging in some sort of play. Usually traditionally it was like a, a combat, like a sword dance that they did. But the practice of dressing up and in particular putting on masks has a lot of influence over Halloween. And this tradition kind of got combined with some of the other elements as well. Because mumming was specifically about disguising yourself in a costume in such a way that covered your face. So a mask, so if you went in disguise. Now, mumming itself was more about a play than it was about trick-or-treating, but the idea of covering your face, masking it, kind of got blended over the years into what we think of today as, as Halloween. Now, mumming still does exist. Uh, there, you do see this in certain parts of, of the world. Um, you actually see it, actually, it's performed in Philadelphia, of all places. They have a, a large mumming tradition there. But the word mumming itself actually uh, comes from a handful of words from different languages, but they usually mean mask or disguised or to, to, to disguise one's face. And the whole idea behind mumming, too, was frequently a way to, to raise money. And so it was kind of like a traveling play that they took through the streets. And so this idea of kind of going house to house, doing your mumming, was blended with the other Halloween traditions of asking for candy, the souling, and that sort of thing. Now, in the late 1800s, there was a push in America to turn Halloween, which was a much darker holiday, into something more about the idea of community. And so Halloween parties became very popular in the late 1800s as kind of a way to celebrate. And so there were games, foods, uh, the costumes, and we started to see a shift away from a lot of the more frightening afterlife costumes, the more grotesque ones, and more into fun, enjoyable celebration. And so we lost a lot of the superstitious overtones, the religious overtones, as well. And so Halloween parties became very popular, especially by the 1920s and 1930s. Halloween had become much more of a secular community-based holiday. Now, by the 1950s in America, Halloween had kind of evolved into a holiday mostly directed at the young. Prior to this, it was much more focused on adults could still dress up and do things like that. But because, especially during the 1950s, there was this huge baby boom, parties shifted more towards into a holiday directed at the youth. And so the idea of uh, trick-or-treating became much more about children. And so we kind of had a lot of legends crop up around this, the idea that families could prevent tricks from being played on them. This is the trick-or-treat. If you didn't want a trick played on you, you would provide the neighborhood kids with candy or small treats of some kind. And so the trick-or-treating that we think of today really began around the 1950s. Again, it has its roots going way back before that, but it really began in the 1950s here in a, a recognizable form that we see it as today. Now, other traditions around Halloween have cropped up as well. As I mentioned, the bobbing for apples, but there are a lot of these kind of party games there specifically. As I mentioned, the bobbing for apples probably goes back to the idea of the Roman festival honoring Pomona, but we saw it also as kind of a, a callback to the original origins of Halloween as being about the harvest, about harvesting the, the fruits of, the, of, your, of your labor, the fruits of the ground. And so there's a lot of harvest elements that you see in Halloween. Uh, the idea of the cornucopia, uh, as I said, the apples, other, other foods. There's a lot of foods that have cropped up around Halloween as well. 
corn. Obviously, candy corn is popular on Halloween today, but that gets back to the idea of corn being kind of at the end of the harvest season, being able to, to reap that. Now, one tradition that we don't really see a ton of anymore today, but used to be much bigger, is the idea of Halloween matchmaking. And this is the idea that Halloween actually had um, the ability to foresee into the future, as I mentioned, prophesy, but specifically around the idea of being able to predict who you're going to marry, your future mate, those sorts of things. And so back in like the 18th century, there was some tradition that you would make a specific type of food, sometimes mashed potatoes, sometimes there were like little Irish cakes and things, but they would bury or bake a ring into the food on Halloween night. And whoever found it would bring true, it, the ring would bring true love to them. Now, we've seen this element of matchmaking occur in multiple different locations. In Scotland, there was a tradition that for young women that they would name um, a hazelnut, They'd take a, a whole group of hazelnuts, name each one after one of her, her suitors, the people that she hoped to marry potentially, and then throw the nuts into the fireplace. And the one that burned into ashes as opposed to kind of popping like a hazelnut might in heat would represent who her future husband was, was supposed to be. And then there's all kinds of other ones too. Young women would throw apple peels over their shoulder, hoping that the peel would land in the shape of like their husband's initials. Uh, there's a, a famous one of standing in front of a mirror. If you stood in front of a dark mirror alone, dark room, holding a candle, you could kind of look over your shoulder and see your husband's face appear before you, or your future husband's face. And so there's all kinds of these traditions around Halloween too of matchmaking and the idea that somehow the connection to the spirit world would allow you to prophesy and to look into the future and see who you're supposed to marry or anything along those lines. Now, we don't see that nearly as much today. Halloween today has become much more commercialized, to be honest, and a lot more about the, the candy and the dressing up in costume. But it does have a lot of these almost romantic elements that we just don't associate with Halloween anymore. But if you, if you needed romantic advice or you were looking forward to getting married or something like that, there were Halloween superstitions that relied on the so-called good spirits that could walk among you who could help you look into the future and see those sorts of things. Now, as I mentioned, today is a little bit different. We see trick-or-treating you know, skyrocketed during the 1950s, really became a national event as Halloween. And today, something like 200 million Americans celebrate the holiday in some form or fashion. And we spend roughly nine to ten billion dollars on Halloween per year. That's decorations, buying candy, costumes, all those sorts of things. So it's a massive, massive enterprise today. And here's where I get into a little bit more of the politics of it. We've seen political costumes become a pretty big deal. And I want to talk a little bit about the the idea of dressing up as politicians, because I think this is a fascinating one because it really doesn't seem to fit with the tradition of de dressing up as spirits or scary figures or ghosts or or anything along those lines it's dressing up as the president or some sort of beloved political figure and so i want to talk a little bit about where these masks come from and kind of why we do it because if you go into any sort of halloween store around this time of year you see masks of incumbent presidents you see masks of former presidents other politicians uh, you know john Kerry, for whatever reason seems to get a fair amount of mask play uh, we also see non-commander-in-chief positions. Michelle Obama, Hillary Clinton both have their own masks that do pretty decent in sales. But this tradition of dressing up as the president on Halloween goes back to at least the 1960s. There is some evidence of political figures 
long before that, Washington, Lincoln being imitated, but the specific idea of dressing up in a mask with the incumbent president's face goes back to the 1960s. And not all masks have popular appeal, right? I mean, frequently you'll see you know, John F. Kennedy or Richard Nixon masks pop up. They're very recognizable, but uh, you never see anybody dressed up as like Calvin Coolidge. On the flip side, you see some of these political masks and politicians who will sell over the next several decades. And usually this gets down to the idea of you know, whether or not they are physically distinct, if you can tell who they are, right? Nixon, Clinton, Obama, George Bush, some of these more physically distinct individuals, but also ones that have an outgoing personality, somebody that's connected with the people in some way, or even a scandal. I mean, Bill Clinton masks are probably one of the best sellers, and a lot of this goes back to this idea of the scandal making him more well-known. But at the end of the day, this idea of dressing up as politicians is probably more spectacle than anything. It's this idea of dressing up as someone that you either love or that you hate. And while it's from a psychological perspective, you're more likely to wear a mask of something that you think conveys fear than you are of something that conveys admiration. If you're going to hide your face on Halloween, you're more likely to be dressing up as something scary than as something that that you love. But we do see a little bit of that both ways. Uh, there's there is some sort of emotional investment. You're not going to dress up as a politician, cover up your own face if there's not some emotional investment one way or the other. And so you see a lot of this kind of political satire take place around Halloween as well. Uh, whether it's you know Sarah Palin to Donald Trump, I imagine Donald Trump will be a pretty popular one this year. But interestingly, as somebody who studies international relations, you don't see politicians from other countries crop up. Political Halloween masks stay very local, or I should say national, within within the country, because unfortunately, the average person doesn't really follow international relations all that closely. And so nobody wants to have to kind of explain their costume to anybody else. If you have to explain your costume, you know, the cliche is it's not a very good costume. Um, and so nobody is trying to pick who the president of, I, I don't know, some random country in Europe is because, because they don't recognize them. Now, we do see a couple of those crop up. British royals, the Queen of England is still fairly popular, but she's more well-known. Tony Blair, you'll sometimes see him crop up in some of these, and as well as some of the more, uh, shall we say, less or I should say, less savory characters on the international stage, Kim Jong-un, Saddam Hussein, some of those that are much more recognizable will crop up. But on a very interesting note here, there was a, a study done a handful of years ago by one of these like big Halloween chain stores that tracked mask sales during election cycles. And what they found is that mask sales accurately predicted who was going to win the, the presidency for every election since I think 96 was when they started tracking it. So, you know, that's not a ton of years, but we're still talking over the last 20 years or so, they have gotten the last several right. And I believe this held through Donald Trump as well, which is fascinating to me because it seems like that people are conveying political opinions through their choice of of how they dress up on Halloween, their mask choices or costume choices. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and kind of wrap things up just as a little bit of a conclusion. The idea of Halloween goes back many, many millennia, actually. Uh, but over time, it's really changed. It's become much more of a mixture of multiple different festivals, roots in the harvest, uh, roots in this idea of like the souls crossing over. But also replaced and redeemed in a sense by some of the religious elements over the years that have kind of stepped in. And actually, the word itself, as I mentioned, Halloween is a religious phrase. You know, all hollows Eve, hollows meaning saints. And so the word Halloween is actually very religious, a very Christian sense. Um, 
but you do still see some of this deep tradition kind of hidden below the surface on Halloween. Uh, there's still this kind of element of spookiness around it that goes back millennia. And even though it's become so commercialized to the point where you can find costumes of literally anything out there, usually you throw the word sexy in front of it and it exists, sexy bananas, sexy pieces of pizza, uh, sexy politicians, all this stuff. I mean, it's become so commercialized and so focused on like the appearance and the, the costume, but you still have a lot of these weird superstitions and rituals and traditions kind of baked into the the core of the holiday and we see a lot of the spookiness elements still kind of rise up throughout that and so today we see people celebrate it in multiple different ways you will see a lot of christian denominations celebrate it by honoring christian martyrs christian saints and those sorts of things or turning it into more of a hol- like a a seasonal holiday you know reflecting the idea of autumn Going, actually going back in a sense to the idea of the harvest. So you see a lot more focus on the cornucopia and the pumpkins and the apples and those type of things and less on the spirit side of it. But you do see a lot of the spirit elements too, especially the idea of, I mean, even the Christian sense, it's this idea of treating them as saints, martyrs who have gone before you, honoring the dead, those sorts of things. And so this kind of pagan harvest festival turned Christian practice still has some elements of both and so today the practice of halloween barely resembles anything that it used to be with with Samhain or any of these other roman holidays or other iterations along the way uh, but with that we're going to go ahead and close out the episode i hope you guys have a, a wonderful halloween this year enjoy it stay safe out there and i will talk to you guys next week here on nutshell politics as always find and follow me on twitter my username there is justin r underscore kinney follow me Hit me up. We can continue conversations there, talking Halloween, talking politics, whatever. I also have a Facebook page. It's J. Robert Kinney. That's the name I write fiction novels under. My, fi- my first novel, Precipice, is on Amazon. Please check it out. I also have a second book called Splintered State, which will be coming out later this fall, probably in November. Find that as well. I'll let you know as soon as that's ready to, to be released so you can track that down. And if you're interested in supporting me, continuing to do what I love, supporting this podcast, or advertising on this podcast in any way, shape, or form, please contact me. You can either contact me directly or find my Patreon account. I would love to talk with you further about that possibility. But in the meantime, and until next time, this is Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I'm out in three, two, one.